April 12th, 1096, Cologne, Germany. The hermit entered the city on a donkey. This lowly man would not have stood out among a lineup of the poorest and most destitute of his age. He wore a rough woolen tunic that stopped short of his ankles, and his calloused feet were bare. He was short and thin as a consequence of his restricted diet. He barely ate any bread, and lived almost exclusively from fish and wine. A long, mangy gray beard streamed out of his gaunt face. Though his outward form was contemptible, a greater valor ruled in his slight frame. He was sharp of wit, and the eloquent words that spilled out of his mouth were intoxicating. His force of personality was irresistible, and though his wretched appearance might have inspired disgust in many, it also spoke to a piety that was not of this earth, that transcended the vanity of mortal men. People would pluck hairs from his donkey and keep them as prized possessions. When he spoke to the masses, they hung on every word he said, for it was not only his aura that was infectious, but his message. To hear him tell it, the hermit had only recently voyaged to the Holy Land, to the center of the globe, that city beloved of God, Jerusalem. There he had witnessed firsthand the atrocities of which crowds that gathered to hear him speak had already heard dark rumors. The violence visited on not only the Christians of the East, but Western pilgrims who suffered just to walk in the footsteps of their savior. The defiling of holy places by the infidel. The hermit carried with him a divine letter signed by the Patriarch of Jerusalem himself, which affirmed his holy mission, or so his silver tongue proclaimed to the illiterate masses that worshiped at his feet. For Jesus the Lord and Savior himself had appeared to the hermit in a vision and told him to return home and stir the hearts of the faithful so that they might cleanse the holy places in Jerusalem. The hermit had obeyed the Lord's commands and upon his return to the lands of the Franks, he had hastened to speak in the willing and attentive ear of the holiest among them, the Pope. Pope Urban II had heard the hermit's words and promised to obey in all things the commands and entreaties of the saints. He had convened a council in Auvergne and there shared with the bishops of nobility of the Frankish kingdom the divine mission that had been imparted to the hermit. There, the bishops and dukes and counts of all class and rank swore to enjoin themselves to the expedition to the Holy Sepulchre. And at this time, a great earthquake occurred, predicting the mobilization of great armies from different kingdoms. All this the hermit related to the crowds that gathered to see him as he traveled throughout Christendom, for the hermit had not ceased and would not cease his preaching. He traveled throughout France and Germany, eager and willing to speak with anyone, of any background, and entreat them to take the road to the Holy Sepulchre with him. Thousands were enraptured and agreed to follow him. There were bishops, abbots, clerics, and monks, the great nobility of knights and princes, but also all the common people, the sinful and the pious, murderers, adulterers, thieves, robbers, beggars and brigands. Entire families and communities gathered around him, not only men, but women and children, carrying all their worldly possessions with them, for they had sold the rest to fund their pilgrimage. 
It was at the head of this mass of humanity that the hermit entered Cologne on April 12th. Electrified with a sudden sense of purpose, those who had flocked around the hermit saw a path of holy righteousness before them. As they journeyed through lands known and unknown, they would bring no peace but a sword or whatever other crude implements of savagery were close at hand. They would slaughter and rape and plunder and even sacrifice themselves if it meant the destruction of those who had refused the word of God. For the end of days was nigh. They would murder those sons of whores, the race of Cain, and smite all demons and non-believers. And just as the meek would inherit the earth, so would the poorest seize the holy city and bring about the millennium. Thus was the will of God. The hermit left Cologne a week after Easter Sunday, on April 20th, 1096. His band of armed pilgrims had now swelled to nearly 20,000. He on his donkey, the few knights who had joined up on their horses, and a buzzing mob of peasant men, women, and children swarming around them, swallowing the horizon. The locusts were gathering, and their hordes would soon blanket the earth. Hello, and welcome to History of the Utremer, episode 2.7, The Locusts. So, our last two episodes have focused on the context that the Bishop of Rome, Urban II, found himself in, and his efforts to negotiate primacy among the milieu of Roman emperors striving for their own superiority. Specifically, the efforts that would contribute to the mass-armed pilgrimage that started shortly after his speech at Claremont in 1095. We undertook this endeavor to mix success. The specifics of Urban's intentions will forever remain a mystery. But we did have the opportunity to explore the various facets at play in motivating thousands of people to take up the cross and travel east. Today, we'll be focusing on those people. Attempting to draw an outline around the motivations of some of the First Crusaders, who we'll be spending the rest of the season with, as they travel across Europe to the Holy Land particularly some of the folks that neither Urban nor his buddy, the Roman Emperor Alexios Komnenos, had really considered for this expedition. Last time, we came to the perhaps unsatisfying conclusion that it doesn't matter what Pope Urban wanted, because the version of the First Crusade that he preached soon mutated into something else. And I also mentioned that the accounts of guys like the anonymous author of the Gesta Francorum and the three monks who adapted his work even if they weren't exact representations of Urban's speech, it didn't matter because they did illustrate the motivations of the knights that took up the cross. As we've talked about before many times, it was this warrior caste which dominated the politics of the era. Just ask Usama ibn Munkith from episode 2.1. The peace and truce of God movements were developed just to control these crazy fuckers, guys like Falk the Black. And the fact that all writing on the First Crusade echoes the same appeals for the Knights of Latin Christendom to stop fighting unholy wars and instead fight holy wars, well, that's not a coincidence. 
Urban and those who followed him saw this form of armed pilgrimage as an excellent way to control and channel the behavior of these knights. But here's the thing. The knights of the First Crusade were a minority. A very vocal minority, but a minority nonetheless. And though they might have had the most clout, as we'll see play out over the coming years, they could be forced to listen to the demands of other participants. Other participants like the commoners. And I'm not talking the anonymous knight author of the Jester Francorum here. I'm talking real grubby, please mister, may I have another bowl of porridge pour. In The Pursuit of Millennium, Revolutionary Millenarians and Mystical Anarchists of the Middle Ages, Norman Cohn explores some of the various apocalyptic sects of the Middle Era. Now, we will have plenty of time, knock on wood, to talk about the end of the world in the future. And we'll have to, because an awful lot of these First Crusaders are pretty sure that their pilgrimage will bring about the end of the world. But for now, what's more relevant for us is how Cohn explores the way Urban's message filtered down to the masses, via preachers, and how it was distorted to fit their mentalities. Quote, When Pope Urban II summoned the chivalry of Christendom to the crusade, he released in the masses hopes and hatreds which were to express themselves in ways quite alien to the aims of the papal policy. The main object of Urban's famous appeal at Claremont in 1095 was to provide Byzantium with the reinforcements it needed in order to drive the Seljuk Turks from Asia Minor, for he hoped that in return the Eastern Church would acknowledge the supremacy of Rome, so that the unity of Christendom would be restored. In the second place, he was concerned to indicate to the nobility, particularly of his native France, an alternative outlet for martial energies. The moment was appropriate, for the Council of Claremont had been largely concerned with the truce of God, that ingenious device by which the church had, for half a century, been trying to limit feudal warfare. In addition to clerics, a large number of lesser nobles had accordingly come to Claremont, and it was primarily to these that, on the last day of the council, the Pope addressed himself. To those who would take part in the crusade, Urban offered impressive rewards, a knight who with pious intent took the cross would earn a remission from temporal penalties for all his sins. If he died in battle, he would earn remission of his sins, and there were to be material as well as spiritual rewards. According to one account, Urban himself contrasted the actual indifference of many nobles with the prosperity which they would enjoy when they conquered fine new fiefs in southern lands. Whether he did so or not, this was certainly a consideration which weighed with many crusaders. Nevertheless, it is clear that already amongst the prelates and priests and nobles who heard Urban's appeal at Claremont, something was at work which was not simply an expectation of individual gain, whether material or spiritual. As the assembly listened, it was swept by emotions of overwhelming power. Thousands cried with one voice, Deus le volt, it is God's will. Crowding around the Pope and kneeling before him, they begged leave to take part in the Holy War. For a brief moment, there reigned in that predominantly aristocratic assembly an atmosphere of collective enthusiasm, such as was to become normal in the contingents of common folk which were formed later. For the appeal at Claremont was only the beginning of an agitation, which was at once taken up by many preachers. The crusade continued to be preached to the nobility by Urban himself, who spent several months traveling through France for the purpose, 
and by the bishops who had returned from Claremont to their dioceses. It was also preached to the common people by a number of prophetai, men who though not equipped with any official authorization, had the prestige which always surrounded the miracle-working ascetic. The sudden appearance of the prophetai preaching the crusade gave these afflicted masses the chance to form salvationist groups on a much vaster scale and at the same time to escape from lands where life had become intolerable. Men and women alike hastened to join the new movement. Often whole families would move together, with the children and household chattels loaded onto carts. And as the hordes grew, they were further swollen by all kinds of nondescript adventurers, by renegade monks, women disguised as men, and many robbers and brigands. To these hordes, the crusade meant something quite different from what it meant to the Pope. The pauperes, as the chroniclers call them, were not greatly interested in assisting the Christians of Byzantium, but they were passionately interested in reaching, capturing, and occupying Jerusalem. Although the possibility of recapturing it seems to have played little part in Urban's original plan, it was this prospect that intoxicated the masses of the poor. In their eyes, the crusade was an armed and militant pilgrimage, the greatest and most sublime of pilgrimages. End quote. The most famous of these prophetai, or prophets as Cohn puts it, is without a doubt Peter the Hermit. Peter the Hermit stands at the center of the popular movement that swelled the ranks of the First Crusade. And he will be a recurring character this season, so best get used to him. However, figuring out exactly who Peter the Hermit was and what he did can be a bit tricky. We know almost nothing about the guy. He was probably from the town of Amiens in northern France, and though various theories about his origins have been floated, all we know for sure is that in the 1090s, he was a particularly popular and charismatic itinerant preacher. His exact backstory, though, remains murky. And this is in part because Peter's role in the First Crusade is often at odds with the interests of those who were writing the history of the First Crusade. In Pierre l'Hermite, La Première Croisade, Peter the Hermit and the First Crusade, Historian Jean Fleury kicks his text off by indicating his reason for writing and revindicating the role of Peter the Hermit. As is par for the course with Fleury's work, this is my own translation of the French text. Quote, Peter the Hermit embodied a popular conception of the crusade, which in many ways and for many reasons unsettled the ecclesiastical hierarchy. In 1099, after the capture of Jerusalem, the end of days that some expected, did not occur. Christ did not appear. History continued. The banality of the daily followed the euphoric exaltation of victory. Time, reflection, disappointment, diverse interests attenuated, indeed erased from memories, the constant atmosphere of the marvelous, of miracle, and of mysticism that had accompanied the expedition and had allowed for its success. The crusade changed key. It went from being a mystic epic to being history. The character of Peter the Hermit, from that moment on, became subversive, unsettling. His claim to a mission from God alone, the eschatological tendencies of his preaching, even his popularity, brought him into disrepute in the eyes of many ecclesiastics. They worked to emphasize the role of the rulers they served, and to eliminate this lowly figure from history, they minimized his role, 
going so far as to erase from their accounts some of his interventions and to darken him with malicious tales, perhaps made up out of whole cloth. End quote. Apart from Peter's ties to the popular conceptions of the Crusades, there's something else about the tale of Peter the Hermit that highlights the non-papal aspects of the Crusade. Because the way Peter the Hermit's involvement in the Crusade was recorded seems to have had a lot to do with which side you aligned with in the epic political struggle of the day. The conflict between the Reform Papacy and the Holy Roman Emperor. To understand why, we need to take a look at the sources for the First Crusade. So, almost everything we know about Peter the Hermit comes from the account of Albert of Aachen, also known as Albert of Aix. That's because the German city of Aachen is also known by its French name, Aix-la-Chapelle, or just Aix for short. That's uh, A-I-X. As his name indicates, Albert was from Aachen in the Holy Roman Empire, modern-day Germany. And as such, he has a noticeable bias towards the German elements in the First Crusade. In fact, some historians have even claimed that Albert's history of the First Crusade is a panegyric of Godfrey of Bouillon, who was a vassal of the German emperor. This is definitely not true. Though it can't be denied that Albert does focus on Godfrey, this is less because he's writing to worship the guy and more because his sources, who were crusaders returning to the same region Godfrey was from on the western edge of the Holy Roman Empire, simply had more information about that contingent of the army. But Albert, regardless of any biases he might have had, is invaluable in part because of a bias he doesn't have, one that he doesn't share with most of the other histories of the First Crusade. The accounts of the First Crusade we talked about last time, Fulcher of Chartres' account, the Gesta Francorum, and the monks who used the Gesta Francorum, well, they're all very biased towards a perspective we can loosely describe as the French perspective. Because they were French, and or aligned with French interests. Fulcher of Chartres was from Chartres in north-central France. And while the anonymous author of the Gesta Francorum was probably an Italo-Norman, remember that the Italo-Normans came from OG Normandy in France. And the monks not only relied heavily on the Gesta Francorum for their texts, but they were also French. All of them. In addition to Fulcher of Chartres and Anonymous, there are actually two other first-hand accounts of the First Crusade that we haven't talked about. The first is one by a certain Peter Tudebode, who was a priest from France, specifically Poitiers, in western France. Now, Tudebode's account is almost identical to the Gesta Francorum. For huge chunks, it's literally the same, word for word. And when it differs, it tends to just add additional detail. Throughout the centuries, different proposals have been floated to account for these similarities. Perhaps the Gesta Francorum is just an abridged version of Tudebode's account, Perhaps both of them are working from an earlier source that's since been lost. The rough consensus at the moment, and the line of thinking that I've been following, is that the Gesta Francorum is indeed the original, and Tudebode somehow got his hands on Anonymous's account. He just added in some details and removed some others. This is not an undisputed consensus though, and we'll have time to talk about some of the differences between Tudebode and Anon in the future because both of them show biases tied to the various princes of the First Crusade. 
and future Outremer rulers. The second account is from Raymond of Aguilet, also from France, specifically southern France. Raymond's account is a bit odd, and he doesn't even include any information regarding the origins of the crusade. But crucially, he traveled in the camp of Ademar of Le Puy, who, if you'll recall, was the priest that Urban had appointed as the spiritual head of the expedition, which of course places him firmly in the reform papacy's orbit. So all four of our first-hand accounts of the First Crusade, Fulcher, Anonymous, Tudebode, and Raymond, represent what we can call a French perspective on the Crusade. Crucially, this perspective was opposed to the German Emperor, Henry IV, and partial to the Pope, Urban II. This gives them all reasons to downplay Peter the Hermit's role in the First Crusade. So, if we want a clearer look at Peter, we have to look away from first-hand accounts and to other contemporaries. Contemporaries who might not have participated in person, but who use the accounts of others who did participate to craft their own narratives. No, not you, Baldrick, Robert, and Guibert. You guys are freaking French monks. Not only are you fucking obsessed with Urban, but your main source was just the, just the Frank Quorum anyway. So, no, fuck off, guys. All right, fuck off. No, we have to look to German writers, to Albert of Aachen. Albert's account stands out because it's not tied to the French perspective, and his writing makes it clear that he never read any of the other main accounts. He mostly relied on first-hand accounts from returning crusaders, who were mainly residents of Lorraine and the Rhineland, the border between France and Germany. And while Albert might not have crusaded, from his home in Aachen, he was a first-hand witness for the origins of the crusade. He actually starts his work lamenting the fact that he wasn't allowed to go. To make up for it, he's going to record the stories of those who did. He says, quote, since I was so inspired but could not go because of various hindrances to the carrying out of my intention, with rash daring I decided to commend to posterity at least some of the things which were made known to me by listening to those who had been there and from their reports, so that even thus I would take great pains, not in idleness, but as if I were a companion in the journey, if not with my body, then with all my heart and soul. Oh, play a sad song for you on the world's smallest violin. Now, because Albert was in no way influenced by the French perspective, he records a completely different origin for the First Crusade. He says, quote, A certain priest, Peter by name, once a hermit, who was born in the city of Amiens, which is in the west of the kingdom of the Franks, was the first to urge steadfastness in this journey, with all the inspiration he could. In Berry, a region of the aforesaid kingdom, he became a preacher of the utmost persuasiveness and oratory, in response to his constant urging and calling, firstly, bishops, abbots, clerics, monks, then the most noble laymen, princes of different domains, and all the common people, as many sinful as pious men, adulterers, murderers, thieves, perjurers, robbers, that is to say, every sort of people of Christian faith. Indeed, even the female sex, led by repentance, all flocked joyfully to this journey. How it happened, and why the hermit preached this same journey and was its first instigator, this present book will tell. End quote. Albert goes on to describe how Peter had traveled to Jerusalem, 
And there, he'd seen firsthand the devastation that quote-unquote Gentiles and wicked men had wrought on the Christians of the area. Then Albert reports a conversation between Peter and the Patriarch of Jerusalem, in which Peter promises the Patriarch, quote, For the love of God and for your liberation and for the cleansing of the holy places, with God beside me, and as long as life is vouchsafed to me, I shall return and seek out first of all the Pope, then all the leaders of Christian peoples, kings, dukes, and counts, and those holding the chief places in the kingdom, and I shall make known to them all the wretchedness of your servitude and the unendurable nature of your difficulties. End quote. Then things get a bit more... mystical. Peter goes to the Holy Sepulchre to pray, and because he's just wiped out, exhausted from uh, prayers... He falls asleep, mid-prayer, I imagine, and then, quote, The majesty of Lord Jesus was shown to him in a vision, deigning thus to address the frail and mortal man. Peter, most beloved son of the Christians, you will arise and go to see our patriarch and get from him a letter of our mission with the seal of the Holy Cross and you will hasten as quickly as possible your journey to the land of your people. You will disclose the malicious acts and injustices inflicted on our people and our holy place, and stir the hearts of the faithful to the cleansing of the holy places. For through dangers and diverse temptations, the gates of paradise will now be opened to those called and chosen. So Peter does as Dream Jesus says. I mean, who wouldn't? And he goes and gets a letter from the patriarch. And then he immediately goes back to Europe to find the Pope. Quote, Peter crossed the sea again with considerable anxiety and sailed back to the city of Bari. And when he was back on dry land, he set out for Rome without delay. There he found the Pope and revealed to him about the mission he had heard and received from God and the Patriarch, about the defiling by the Gentiles and the outrages against the holy places and the pilgrims, Indeed, as soon as the Pope had heard these things with a willing and attentive ear, he promised to obey in all things the commands and entreaties of the saints. Stirred into action because of this, he crossed the Alps and decreed that there should be a meeting of the Frankish kingdom. There, he set out for Clermont in the Auvergne. End quote. Okay, 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 all right. Albert really took my suggestion to customize his version of the First Crusade Origins, and he just ran with it. This is a very different series of events from the accounts given in the histories we explored last time. There's no mention of Piacenza or the Byzantine Romans. There's also none of the peace and truce of God style rhetoric we find in other accounts. Unsurprisingly, those elements, seeking reconciliation with the Byzantines and trying to control the Knights of Francia, are closely tied to the political aspirations of the Reform Papacy. So it makes sense that Albert, who wasn't really aligned with the Reform Papacy, wouldn't feel obligated to include these elements. But is his Peter the Hermit-centered version believable? Well, as Christopher Tierman puts it in God's War, quote, it is easily conceivable that Urban, in exploiting the Greek invitation for aid into his scheme of a papally-led Christian renewal, incorporated appeals from the Christian community in Jerusalem and the evangelical activism of Peter the Hermit. The legend may not be groundless. End quote. One of the reasons this is believable is that our other sources have a lot of reasons to distort events and cut Peter the Hermit out because this was not just a battle for posterity or honor. 
the question of who had engineered the First Crusade, who was the true force behind the events that unfolded in the years following 1095, it had serious implications for the political struggle between the Reform Papacy and the German Emperor. In fact, in 1103, Henry IV would actually make an attempt of his own to launch a crusade. Because, hell, if you can't beat him, join him. Nothing much would come of his attempt, but it demonstrates just how important these new armed pilgrimages had become to the political landscape. So for the Reform Papacy to hand over credit for this amazing success to a grubby itinerant hermit? Yeah, no fucking way that was ever gonna happen. Hence, the French perspective on events and the erasure of Peter the Hermit. So if we choose to buy into Albert's account, we could view the origins of the First Crusade as being simply urban bringing two strands together. First, the appeal from Alexios Komnenos, which he was super keen to answer because, well, that would allow him to strong-arm the Roman Emperor. And second, the armed pilgrimage idea given to him by Peter the Hermit. What makes this version of events even more appealing is the timing. The forces of the Peasants' Crusade were on the move almost immediately after Claremont, and this shows that their mobilization actually predated urban speech. Peter was almost certainly preaching this expedition before Claremont, so it wouldn't be out of the question to view Urban as just riding the wave of this massive armed pilgrimage, attempting to tack his own objectives onto this popular movement. It would maybe even explain some of the confusion in the sources as to what Urban actually said at Claremont, as different writers tried to either ignore the popular armed pilgrimage aspect or attribute it to Urban. These were maybe different ways to get around mentioning Peter the Hermit and keep the spotlight on Urban. Lots of maybes here, and a lot of this depends on how much you trust Albert of Aachen. Historians used to trust him implicitly, mostly because of the fact that William of Tyre trusted him. William of Tyre is, of course, the 12th century historian, native to the Kingdom of Jerusalem, whose history of the Kingdom of Jerusalem is one of the most comprehensive of the entire Middle Ages. However, the 19th century saw a backlash begin against Albert of Aachen, and Albert, as well as the notion of Peter the Hermit playing a role in the origins of the First Crusade, fell a bit by the wayside. Recently, Albert's reputation has slowly been built back up somewhat, and after reading some of the work done by Jean Fleury, as well as the author of the most recent English translation of his work, Susan B. Edgington, well, I'm sold on his merits. In a lot of ways, Albert seems to be preserving a more popular notion of the crusade. One interesting aspect of Albert's work is the ties it has to the epic poems and songs written about the First Crusade. In particular, Albert's history shows a lot of similarities with La Chanson d'Antioche, which also pointed to Peter the Hermit as the inventor of the First Crusade. Now, we talked about and heard an excerpt from La Chanson d'Antioche back in episode 2.3. For a quick refresher, the version of the chanson that has come down to us was written by a minstrel named Grandor of Douai around the time of the Third Crusade. Its place as more lowbrow fare is evident in the fact that it was written not in Latin, but in the common tongue, Romance or what we would nowadays call Old French. Grandor claimed to be working from an earlier chanson by a certain Richard the Pilgrim, who was a participant on the First Crusade. But here's the thing, 
the Chanson d'Antioche shares a lot of similarities with Albert of Aachen's history. There are some lines that are almost identical. As with the relationship between Anonymous and Peter Tudebode, historians are divided as to what exactly the relationship between Albert and La Chanson d'Antioche is. So there are a few theories. The first is that Richard the Pilgrim was made up by Grendor, who actually used Albert of Aachen's account to form his little song. However, there are other possibilities to explain why these two texts are so similar. And one of the most interesting is that Richard the Pilgrim was indeed a real guy who wrote a real chanson, which was not only the core of Grendor's later chanson, but a source for Albert's history. Regardless of how Albert's history, Grendor's chanson, and this hypothetical Richard the Pilgrim chanson are actually related, this relationship highlights Albert's willingness to engage with a more popular conception of the Crusades as opposed to the French perspective, which was rigid in its allegiance to Pope Urban. Now, here's an interesting detail. As I mentioned earlier, William of Tyre uses Albert of Aachen as a main source for the events that led to the founding of his homeland. And so as a consequence, he also includes Peter the Hermit in his account of events. What I find interesting is that William of Tyre was writing around the same time as Grendor of Douai, right around the time of the Third Crusade about seven years after the First Crusade. By that time, the conflict between the Reform Papacy and the German Emperor had been not really settled, but it had changed. And there must have been something about Albert's account and its inclusion of Peter the Hermit that seemed appealing to this new generation of writers. Perhaps it was that people in general knew that Peter the Hermit had played a large role in kickstarting the First Crusade. And the only reason we don't see him represented in other contemporary texts is that these were forced to align to the French perspective and focus solely on Urban as the leader of the First Crusade. Uh, spiritually, at least. So, what's the answer here? I don't know. We're still in half-answer mode. Just know that whatever story someone tells you about how the First Crusade got started, they're leaving out at least a dozen other possibilities. While Peter's activities before 1095 remain questionable, his story becomes a lot clearer after Urban's speech at Claremont. Throughout late 1095, much like Urban, Peter traveled throughout both France and Western Germany. Interestingly, he seems to have focused on the areas where Pope Urban was not. By spring of 1096, he had not only amassed a sizable army of his own, but he'd inspired various other armies to coalesce. We'll be talking about some of these other ones over the next few episodes. Now, Urban had set August 15th as the date of departure, but these armies weren't waiting a second longer. The first to set out was under the command of a certain Walter Sansavoir. Now, his last name, Sansavoir, has led some to think that he was a particularly poor knight, because in French, it literally means without have, like possessing nothing and you sometimes see it translated as penniless. However, it seems that this is actually a reference to his noble lineage, and maybe even to his family motto, sans avoir peur, without having fear, like fearless, basically. Either way, Walter was definitely not destitute, and he had in his entourage a capable band of knights. His group of a few thousand crusaders actually seems to have been relatively well-equipped. Albert of Aachen says he had a, quote, great fellowship of Frankish people on foot, of which only eight had horses. Those people on foot is actually a bit vague, and I've seen it translated as foot soldiers as well. 
In Latin, Albert says they were pedibus, which just means on foot. And he's actually specific about eight of these guys having horses. He doesn't call them milites or knights. That doesn't mean that they weren't knights and horses were expensive. So it's not like they were poor or anything like that. Walter's smaller army was probably functioning as some sort of advance guard for Peter's larger army of tens of thousands, if you believe the sources. Walter met up with Peter in Cologne and spent both Holy Week and Easter there. He then set out for Jerusalem, probably two days after Easter, and five days before Peter left. His army moved east through Germany and arrived in Hungary on May 8th. We'll leave Walter there for now, but we'll be coming back to him in the future. Now, I should be pointing to Walter as an example of why the Peasants' Crusade is a misnomer. Because look, here was a knight, and despite the misinterpretation of his name, he definitely wasn't penniless. But look here, buddy. What do you want me to call it? Calling it any sort of crusade is a friggin' misnomer. These are either pilgrimages or journeys, if you read the sources. The term crusade wouldn't enter common usage for nearly a century. We talked about this way back in the season intro. And though this element of the First Crusade might not have been exclusively peasants, it had a sizable element of the lower classes that cannot be ignored. In fact, one element that can't be overstated is how different the armies that responded to Peter's call to arms were from the type of folks that Urban was looking to recruit. Not only is Urban's sermon at Claremont, in all the sources, directed at the Knights of Latin Christendom, but Urban's own writing clarifies that some folks were explicitly forbidden from participating. Last time, I quoted a letter he wrote to the clerics in Bologna, but I didn't quote the whole thing, so let's take a listen to it. Urban wrote, We have heard that some of you have conceived the desire to go to Jerusalem, and you should know that this is pleasing to us. And you should also know that if any among you travel, not for the desire of the goods of this world, but only those who go for the good of their souls and the liberty of the churches, they will be relieved of the penance for all their sins, for which they have made a full and perfect confession, by the mercy of Almighty God and the prayers of the Catholic Church, as much as by our own authority, as that of all the archbishops and bishops in Gaul, because they have exposed themselves and their property to danger out of their love of God and their neighbor." To neither clerics nor monks, however, do we concede permission to go without the permission of their bishops or abbots. Let it be the bishop's duty to permit their parishioners to go only with the advice and provision of the clergy, nor should young married men rashly set out on the journey without the consent of their spouses. End quote. So Urban here is explicitly prohibiting clerics and monks from going, and it really seems like it's only men who should be going. Notice he says, get your spouse's permission, men, not, hey, take your spouse along, which is what Albert reports happening in Peter's armies. And in another letter addressed to a congregation of monks in Tuscany, Urban wrote, quote, We have heard that some of you want to set out with the knights who are making for Jerusalem, with the good intention of liberating Christianity. This is the right kind of sacrifice, but it is planned by the wrong kind of person. For we were stimulating the minds of knights to go on this expedition, since they might be able to restrain the savagery of the Saracens by their arms and restore the Christians to their former freedom. End quote. Fulcher of Chartres, very much aligned with the papal agenda, also has a scene in his history where he describes a departing crusader in the following way. Quote, 
Oh, how much grief there was, how many sighs, how much sorrow, how much weeping among loved ones when the husband left his wife so dear to him, as well as his children, father and mother, brothers and grandparents, and possessions however great. But however so many tears those remaining shed for those going, these were not swayed by such tears from leaving all that they possessed, without doubt believing that they would receive a hundredfold what the Lord promised to those who loved him. Then the wife reckoned the time of her husband's return, because if God permitted him to live, he would come home to her. He commended her to the Lord, kissed her, and promised as she wept that he would return. She, fearing that she would never see him again, not able to hold up, fell senseless to the ground, mourning her living beloved as though he were dead. He seemed to have no compassion for the weeping of his wife, nor feel pain for the grief of any friends, and yet he had it for he secretly suffered severely, unchanging, went away with a determined mind. Sadness to those remaining, however, was joy to those going away. What then can we say? This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is serious. I know. This really is the world's smallest violin. See? Fulcher gives an almost Arthurian, proto-chivalric account of a brave knight suffering in silence as he leaves his family. These were disciplined, committed men, which doesn't really match Albert of Aachen's description of Peter the Hermit's armies. Bishops, abbots, clerics, monks, then the most noble laymen, princes of different domains, and all the common people. As many sinful as pious men, adulterers, murderers, thieves, perjurers, robbers, that is to say every sort of people of Christian faith, indeed even the female sex, led by repentance, all flocked joyfully to this journey. So here we have members of the clergy, which Urban had banned from participating, and though we do have noble laymen, the type of fellows that were directly addressed in the accounts we have of Urban's speech, we also have commoners and even <gasps> women. Albert's description of Peter's armies seems almost transgressively egalitarian in composition. Last time, I made an offhand comparison between Peter the Hermit and Jim Jones. Uh, for those who don't know, Jim Jones was an American cult leader in the 60s and 70s. His group, the People's Temple, ended up fleeing to Guyana to a compound known as Jonestown, where in 1978, they committed murder-suicide en masse. In total, 918 people died. Many were killed against their will. These were families at the compound, and the parents, in many cases, murdered their children. In case you want to absolutely ruin your day, they recorded the whole thing, and the audio is available online. Warning, not safe for life. Serious nightmare fuel. This event, by the way, is the source of the phrase, drinking the Kool-Aid. Because the murder-suicide weapon of choice at Jonestown was cyanide, mixed in with some sort of powdered drink mix. Not actually Kool-Aid mix, though, apparently. The Wikipedia page includes an absolutely hilarious section about this. I mean, like, it's black humor, but I find it funny, but I make a podcast about Crusaders, so... Quote, Descriptions of the event often refer to the beverage not as Kool-Aid, but as Flavor-Aid, a less expensive product reportedly found at the site. Kraft Foods, the maker of Kool-Aid, has stated the same. This implies that it was referred to as Kool-Aid because that brand was better known among Americans. Other accounts are less categorical. 
Film footage shot inside the compound prior to the events of November shows Jones opening a large chest in which boxes of Flavor Aid are visible. End quote. Uh, so there you go. I guess we've all been drinking the Flavor Aid with regard to which powdered drink mix should be referenced when describing blind loyalty to a wrong-headed idea. Okay, so why the fuck are we talking about Jonestown? Well, well, well. Because the similarity that jumped out to me when reading about the Peasants' Crusade was the violent desire for a communist utopia, which is what Jim Jones was on about, and which was the vision that he sold to his followers. Obviously, communism didn't exist in the 11th century. But throughout history, the lower classes and the disadvantaged have wanted a better life for themselves, obviously. And often, they've embraced ways of thinking that promised that to them. Though we don't have any direct writings from the peasant element in the First Crusade armies, the sources that engage more with characters like Peter the Hermit often give us hints of what may have attracted thousands to risk their lives and give up everything to take the cross. They were drinking the Kool-Aid. Oh, shit, sorry. They were drinking the Flavor-Aid. Though their beliefs obviously varied as individuals, we can see veins of a shared, perhaps nebulously conceived, desire to tear down the world order and replace it with a newer one, a better one. This is tied up in some of that eschatological or apocalyptic thinking that I mentioned earlier, but we can also see it in descriptions like Albert's that point out how this army violated and brought down the social barriers of the age. You can hear the 11th century shock when he writes, Queen Shekshush Femininush. Even the feminine sex. Like, can you imagine? We don't see the same kind of descriptions in writers following the French perspective, those who are more focused on Pope Urban's efforts. Here's Robert the Monk relating the Pope's speech at Claremont, directed at Knights. May your minds be stirred to bravery by the deeds of your forefathers, by the probity and magnitude of Charlemagne, and of Louis his son, and of the other kings who destroyed pagan kingdoms, and in their lands spread out the holy church. He's addressing them as the nobility, the descendants of great kings, not the unwashed masses. There are no beggars and thieves to be found amongst the sons of Charlemagne. Now, what Urban and his followers envisioned doesn't exactly square up with the real events, as we'll be coming to later on. It's not like the later so-called Prince's Crusade had no commoners. But that doesn't detract from the fact that this first element of the Crusade, led by Peter the Hermit, was incredibly different in composition and even objectives from what Urban seems to have intended. Maybe the two expeditions weren't even connected. At least, originally you kind of get the impression that Peter was planning a huge armed pilgrimage at the same time as Urban was planning to send his own forces to Constantinople to aid Alexios Komnenos. And it just happened that these two forces ended up melting together. The exact relationship between Peter and Urban becomes really hard to pin down. But once they got going, these various elements merged into one chaotic storm of crusading fervor. I quite like this perfect storm view of the First Crusade. It explains the confusion between the sources and the multiple personalities of the Crusade as the expedition moves from Europe to the Levant. I also don't think there's any reason to go looking for one sole instigator to the First Crusade. Instead, it was really just the combination of various interests trying to do various things and ending up 
aligned in their actions. As Christopher Tierman puts it, quote, The elements in Urban's coup of 1095 begin to be apparent. The Greek appeal to the Pope of March 1095, only the latest in a consistent series, increasing contacts with the East through pilgrims, mercenaries, and correspondence with some of the higher nobility of the West, persistent rumors of persecution of pilgrims and attacks on Eastern Christians, perhaps reaching a crescendo through the accounts of travelers and Greek diplomats, the consolidation of Urban's own historical and theological vision, the coincidence of the improved political position of Urban in Italy and France. The roles of Urban, Alexios, and Peter the Hermit have often been placed in opposition as explanations of the events of 1095. Perhaps instead, they should be seen as complementary. End quote. Speaking of the Emperor Alexios's role in all this, it's been a long time since we visited with his daughter, the historian, Anna Komnini. Now, back in episode 1.16, we talked about how evasive Anna is regarding her father's role in starting the First Crusade. So, the account she gives is actually in line with Albert of Aachen. She also credits Peter the Hermit with starting the crusade, and her description of the armies is also much closer to Albert's, though much less positive. Quote, The whole of the West and all the barbarians who lived between the Adriatic and the Straits of Gibraltar migrated in a body to Asia, marching across Europe country by country with all their households. The reason for this mass movement is to be found, more or less, in the following events. A certain Celt, called Peter, left to worship at the Holy Sepulchre, and after suffering much ill-treatment at the hands of the Turks and Saracens who were plundering the whole of Asia, he returned home with difficulty. Unable to admit defeat, he wanted to make an attempt by the same route, but realizing the folly of trying to do this alone, worse things might happen to him. He worked out a clever scheme he decided to preach in all the Latin countries. A divine voice, he said, commanded him to proclaim to all the counts in France that all should depart from their homes, set out to worship at the holy shrine, and with all their soul and might, strive to liberate Jerusalem from the Agarines. Surprisingly, he was successful. It was as if he had inspired every heart with some divine oracle. Celts assembled from all parts, one after another, with arms and horses and all the other equipment for war. Full of enthusiasm and ardor, they thronged every highway, and with these warriors came a host of civilians, outnumbering the sand of the seashore or the stars of heaven, carrying palms and bearing crosses on their shoulders. Like tributaries joining a river from all directions, they streamed towards us in full force, the arrival of this mighty host was preceded by locusts. There was something strange about the barbarians' advance, which intelligent people at least would notice. The multitudes did not arrive at the same moment, nor even by the same route. How could they cross the Adriatic en masse after setting out from different countries in such great numbers? But they made the voyage in separate groups, some first, some in a second party, and others after them in order, until all had arrived. Each army, as I have said, was preceded by a plague of locusts, so that everyone, having observed the phenomenon several times, came to recognize locusts as the forerunners of Frankish battalions. End quote. Of course, as we talked about at length in episode 1.16, Anna has many reasons to avoid any mention of her father playing a role in the arrival of the quote-unquote Celts. Alexios was almost certainly not surprised by their arrival, though, as he had supplies ready for them, 
and he immediately set them to do his dirty work, fighting the Turks in Asia. However, the mere fact that she gives the story of Peter the Hermit as the cause for this event does tell us that it was something she was aware of, and given the fact that she wasn't exactly hanging out with the dregs of Latin society, you have to ask, where did she pick that story up? Perhaps many members of the First Crusade, noble and common, accepted Peter's role as fact. It was only retroactively that accounts favoring the reform papacy focused on urban sermons. We could easily imagine a more honest version of Anna's account that includes her father asking the Pope for aid fighting the Turks. And then, all of a sudden, the arrival of these troops is muddled up with a chaotic armed pilgrimage. Because while he was probably not surprised by their arrival, Alexios was almost certainly surprised by the composition of these... armies? He had asked for military aid, not a mass migration. Regardless of what elements she leaves out, Anna is likely relating genuine shock at seeing hordes of men, women, and children flocking the roads. She even makes a very biblical allusion in connecting the Frankish armies to plagues of locusts. And she's not the only one who sees them this way. This unorganized, undisciplined army also left that impression on some of their fellow Western Europeans. Those who weren't wearing the rose-tinted glasses of a shared faith. The Chronicle of Solomon Bar Simpson, written in Hebrew, records the events of 1096 from the perspective of the Jewish community of Germany. Quote, I will now recount the event of this persecution in other martyred communities, as well as the extent to which they clung to the Lord, God of their fathers, bearing witness to his oneness to their last breath. In the year 4856, the year 1028 of our exile, in the eleventh year of the cycle Ranu, the year in which we anticipated salvation and solace, this year turned instead to sorrow and groaning, weeping and outcry, inflicted upon the Jewish people were the many evils related in all the admonitions, those enumerated in scripture, as well as those unwritten were visited upon us. At this time, arrogant people, a people of strange speech, a nation bitter and impetuous, Frenchmen and Germans set out for the holy city, which had been desecrated by barbaric nations, there to seek their house of idolatry and banish the Ishmaelites and other denizens of the land and conquer the land for themselves. They decorated themselves prominently with their signs, placing a profane symbol, a horizontal line, over a vertical one, on the vestments of every man and woman whose heart yearned to go on the stray path to the grave of their Messiah. Their ranks swelled until the number of men, women, and children exceeded a plague of locusts covering the earth. As the locusts move east, they will engage in brutal conflict with the locals of the regions they pass through the bloodiest of these atrocities will occur almost immediately before the First Crusaders even leave Western Germany. In the spring of 1096, when the armies answering Peter the Hermit's call for an armed pilgrimage carry out massacres of thousands of Jews living in the Rhineland. Next time on History of the Uchimer, we'll come face to face with the xenophobic and murderous face of what Alexios Komnenos, Pope Urban II, and Peter the Hermit had unleashed upon the world. 
Hello, just catching up here. Hi, you know, it's Ale from History of the Uchmer. How are you? Just, you know, just hanging out. Hey, uh, you know, just, you know, I'm the kind of guy you can get a beer with. I got a beer right here. I'm going to open it right now. Listen, listen. See, you know, just chill, you know. Gotcha. This is another call to action. Wait a minute. Sip my beer. It's another call to action. I'm doing a call to action, all right? If you enjoy the podcast, if you feel it's contributed to your life and it might do the same for others, share this shit on social media, throw it on Twitter, post it on Reddit. Commit seven gruesome murders, each one illustrating one of the seven deadly sins of Christian tradition, and each one at a specific address, so that when a rookie police officer accidentally drops the case files, the street names for each of the killings is revealed to be a word jumble that, when put in the correct order, reads, Hey, check out History of the Uchimera, a podcast detailing the rise and fall of the Levantine states founded by Latin Christian crusaders, available on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever else you get your podcast fix.